while you're turning to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, let me ask you a quick question. Show of hands, how many of you like reality TV shows? Some of y'all are being judged so hard right now by your spouse. They know how many episodes of Bachelorette you have on the DVR. I'm just saying. Right? Whether you're a TV watcher or not, reality TV has permeated American culture really over the last 20 to 25 years. And whether you consider all of the reality TV out there family-friendly programming, there are a lot of shows out there which are considered reality TV that many of us watch. If you're into music shows, The Voice, American Idol, those are reality TV shows. If you're into competitive game shows like Survivor or Amazing Race or American Ninja Warrior, those are reality TV shows. But early on in this reality TV wave that began in the early 2000s, there was another type of show. And some of these, these titles are going to sound familiar, right? And there was a really good stretch of time where these shows had incredible buy-in and viewership. And that type of show was the makeover show, right? Extreme makeover. What not to wear. If you went into my closet, you would be able to say that phrase a whole lot. Uh, America's Next Top Model. And then it, it went beyond that, right? We, we started going, well, what else can we make over? And so we started doing people's homes and living rooms. And so you had Extreme Makeover Home Edition and you had Property Brothers and all these other things. And the premise, right, in all of these makeover shows is exactly the same. It says, hey, we're gonna take the old you, we're gonna take the old clothes, we're gonna take the old stuff, we're gonna take the, the outdated hairstyle and the, the outdated appearance, right? And we're gonna get rid of it and we're gonna watch you transform into the new you. Something completely different. Someone who's prettier or more confident or better dressed. We're gonna see just how you, in the right context, shine in a way that no one ever else knew was possible. And not only are you gonna look different, but now you're gonna act different. And the hope in all of these shows, right, is that once you recognize what's possible, you're never gonna be the same again. At least that's the hope. Well, as we come to Ephesians chapter four this morning, we're gonna encounter a very similar idea. As, as followers of Jesus, the Bible says that there's an old way of going about life that all of us, if we know Jesus, all of us used to live in, and we can just as easily slip back into. But if we know Jesus, if we've been transformed by God's work to save us from our sin, then we're no longer the same people that we were before. There's a new self. There's a new self that changes how we look to the world around us. It changes how we act that is markedly different than who we were before. But unlike a makeover TV show that only goes skin deep with superficial changes, this work that God does in us is a work that takes place in our hearts and in our minds from the inside out. And so we'll see this morning that while we still have a responsibility as followers of Jesus to wake up every single day and, and embrace this change, we do so as people empowered by God to live according to his word. So let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17, and examine this 
together a little more closely. Starting in verse 17, the word of God to us in the book of Ephesians says this, Now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. First thing I want you to see this morning from God's word is that we are called as followers of Jesus to throw away the old self that doesn't fit anymore. We're called to throw away the old self that doesn't fit anymore. What do I mean by that? Take a look back at verse 17 with me. Paul is, is imploring here in the text to say, listen, as you look at the world around you, as you survey the, the landscape, as you interact with, with people in the world around you, listen, there is always going to be an appeal. There is always going to be a pull to gravitate back to the manner of living that you see around you. Right? These are believers in Jesus, and he's saying, look, I'm doubling down on this. I say, and I testify in the Lord, don't live like the world around you anymore. Why is that? It's comfortable, isn't it? It's comfortable. It's known. It's familiar. But we're reminded here that in Jesus, that's no longer the pattern that we follow. Now that we're in Christ, we've been called out of darkness and into the light. So we no longer walk as the Gentiles do. We no longer live according to the pattern of the behavior of the world around us. But we walk as we saw back at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4, right? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. To help us understand why this is here, to help us understand why the Bible is imploring us here not to live like the world around us, the layer gets peeled back a little bit more here to remind us of the nature of what it looks like to live according to the old self, doesn't it? Look at the end of verse 17 and following. The Bible says here that, that outside of Jesus, the end of verse 17, the manner in which we walk is in the futility of our minds, darkened in understanding, alienated from the life that's found in God because God is not known to us. And not only because of our sinful nature, but also because our hearts are inclined away from him and towards sin. Right? Verse 19, the, the pattern of life in the world around us is unfeeling toward the things of God and freely given to practice whatever kind of sin we are willing to pursue. Is that not true? Do we not see that in the world around us? Listen, the Bible's not saying here that as we look to the world around us that, that every person that we interact with is going to be the most evil version of themselves possible. In fact, I would venture to guess that most of us, when we think about our friends and our family members and the people in our life that, that don't know the Lord, we look at them and we go, these are people that the world esteems as morally upright, good parents, 
faithful spouses, nice people, hard workers. And that very well may have been true of us before Jesus saved us. But what's the motivation underneath that? When we survey the world around us, even the most morally upright people around us, the best among us, what is the motivation? Is it a motivation to say, I'm waking up this morning and I'm, I'm doing what's right because I'm fixated upon Jesus, who is the author of truth. He's the standard of rightness. And my life is made to glorify and honor him. So any good that I do, any praise that I receive for the things that I do are ultimately a reflection of the fact that he is good first and has made me a child of God. That's not the motivation. Something else, right? Outside of Jesus, the motivation is to be good according to a personal standard of morality or to find satisfaction or purpose in money or status or number of friends. Students, that doesn't just end when you're an adult. It starts in middle school and high school and it goes on. How many friends do I have? How popular am I? How liked am I? How do I dress? What's the square footage of my house beyond And outside of Jesus, there's no greater authority on truth and what's right than what we think. And the word says, listen, if that's the world that you live in, that's darkened thinking. It's meaningless thinking. It seems right. It seems good. But it betrays the purpose for which we were made, which is to glorify God and find our meaning and our purpose in him. It's missing the mark. That's why we don't walk as the Gentiles do. But that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? Outside of Jesus, who is the compass of truth by which we understand and orient our life to all things. Look at verse 21 there. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Outside of Jesus, the bent of our hearts is going to be to do whatever feels good and right for us. Which can lead to all kinds of things that God calls evil, pursuing money or power or sex, seeking revenge, cutting others down, reimagining biology, vainly seeking the approval of others. The list can go on and on and on because the motivation is to do what feels good and right to us. Our bent as people outside of Jesus will be towards sin and we will blindly follow it without knowing any better or any different. So why do I say all that? For two reasons. Number one, the same reason Paul does here. Church, we still live in the world, don't we? We still live in the world. The imploring to believers in Ephesus to no longer live according to the Gentiles is because there's always temptation to live like the Gentiles. Maybe I'm the only one. But I see the world around me. I see what the world values. I see what the world says is an indicator of success. And my heart battles daily to not be sucked into that mentality. To say that somehow there's a higher aim or goal than to be pleasing to the Lord Jesus. And to live my life according to his word. 
to seek promotion or power or money or status or home, to not be viewed as a bad parent because my kids don't behave the way that this person does over here, to let someone see the best of my life that I'm willing to put on social media so they they think my life is somehow more perfect than it really is when 90% of my life I would never put on social media because it's not sexy, it's not fun. Kids throwing up on Easter Sunday morning. I'm not hashtagging that blessed life. Right? But the world around us wants to say, listen, this is the standard that you've got to follow. And especially living in such an affluent culture and an affluent area, the trap and the lies of this world are so easy to get into. But as we know, the crown and the treasure the, tra- the crown of righteousness and the treasures that are laid up for us in heaven are far greater than the things that we amass here and we can't take any of those with us, right? Do we look at the world around us and say, yes, I want my life to be like this or even as we go through life, enjoying the things that God has given to us here, do we say, this is good, but there's something better And that's what I'm fixated on. So I'm not going to pattern my life according to what I see here. I'm looking for something better. So the encouragement is don't give in. Don't compromise on truth that we know is in Jesus just to live in harmony with the ideals and the standards of the world around us. Don't fall into the trap of believing that things here are not that bad. So it's okay if we want to cozy up in certain areas. We've been changed from the inside out. We're no longer bound to live according to the world's standards, but instead we pattern our lives after Jesus. But the second reason I think that Paul and the Bible here says this is that as we live the Christian life and we wake up daily and we choose to do so by the power of the Spirit at work in us to break with the pattern of the world around us, The second reason that this encouragement is given here is so that we don't do it with our noses upturned and our egos inflated. What do I mean by that? You remember back to Ephesians chapter two, several weeks ago when we were there? What does the Bible remind us of there? It says, and you, me, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in in which we once walked, right? It's the same walk terminology, in which we once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom what? Among whom we all once lived, carrying out the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and by nature, rightful recipients, children of wrath. So reminder to us this morning, church, that, that we don't make this break with the world. We don't look at the world around us with noses upturned as though we knew better. Because outside of Jesus interrupting our sinful bent, outside of Jesus chasing down our sinful hearts and saying, no longer will you fall in love with what the world and what sin offers, but instead see Jesus magnified and risen we would be incapable of doing anything other than living exactly like the world around us. 
So any goodness that comes out of us, any behavior that we're about to, to talk about in Ephesians 4 and 5 and 6, any behavior that looks different than the world around us is first and foremost because Jesus overrode our sinful nature, redeemed us and called us to himself. That's our hope. It reminds us when we see the world around us as broken as it is that the issue there is not that they just need to behave better. They need Jesus to change their understanding of what is important and what is primary so that everything else in life will fall in order. Any goodness that comes out of us comes because Jesus saved us. And so we're not about the business of behavior modification to be more righteous. We're about the business of humble reliance upon Jesus to change us from the inside out. So let's talk about the shift, right? There's a shift that's taken place that we read about here in this first half of this passage. We're no longer bound to live as we once did because we've learned Christ. We haven't learned rules and regulations to follow. We haven't been given a list of things to do. We've learned a person. We've learned Jesus. Look back at verse 20 with me. It says, but this, this pattern of behavior that you and I have just talked about, this is not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. What Paul is saying here is that if you've heard about Jesus and you were taught in him, and, and the implication here is that you have, and, and that you have learned about Christ, and that you've learned in him to put off the old self, this former way of living that we've been talking about, that was stuck in obedience to the flesh. Because you've learned Christ, what are we called to do? We ditch the old self like a worn out pair of clothes that don't fit us anymore, that are no longer in style because we see how ragged and worthless they are compared to the life and truth that we now know is in Jesus. Which leads us to the second main thing the Bible tells us today, which is that having thrown away the old self that doesn't fit anymore, instead, what do we do? We sport the new self that Christ tailored for us. What does that mean? Look at verse 23 with me. It says, having put off the old self, we are renewed in the spirit of our minds and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You know, for the last several years, one of the projects that our older two girls uh, had to do as part of their schoolwork was write a research paper on a famous person from history and then dress up as that person and give a presentation to their peers. And so a couple of years back, our oldest decided that she wanted to write a paper about Amelia Earhart. Uh, and that was great. It was very exciting. So we, we, we got all the books and the resources together. We went to the library and we figured out all the things we needed to learn about her life. And, you know, we got closer and closer to the, the due date of the project. And we're working with her and trying to get everything exactly the way that it needs to be. And the paper's done and the presentation is done. And then we had to figure out how to make a 10-year-old look like someone in a 1930s flight suit. Thank God for Amazon, right? 
You need Star Wars toilet paper by tomorrow? Check. You need an all-in-one oil diffuser rice cooker pencil sharpener that's travel size and works with your Alexa devices? Done. Comes in pink, purple, and turquoise. Take your choice, right? Um, Thankfully, right, someone had the idea somewhere along the way to design, to create a costume for kids that look like an old-time aviator, complete with airman's cap and goggles and flight jacket and pants, the whole nine yards. I mean, all we had to do was go, thank God for Amazon, order the outfit, and have her put it on, and she was transformed into the likeness of Amelia Earhart. And that's the idea that we see here, is it not? That in Christ, we put on the new self, right? This isn't something that we've created. It says it's created by him after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This new self is created in the the pattern and the style and the likeness of Jesus, his character, his attributes, so that when we put it on, we no longer look like the person we were before. But instead, we've adopted the appearance and the character of Jesus to those around us by his words and by our attitudes and by our actions. I mean, to be clear, this is not talking about putting on a better version of ourselves that we're working really hard on. This is an identity change where Christ makes us a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, the old is gone. The new has come, and so we now no longer walk according to the pattern of this world, but from the inside out, we walk in righteousness and holiness as God works in us. So how does this happen? I think it's important to note here as we talk about taking off the old self and putting on the new self, that this is both a one-time thing and a daily process. This is both a one-time thing and a daily process, right? When we trust in Jesus, we are positionally changed before the Father. He has made us into something we were not before. We were alienated from God, unable to please him, unable to live according to the spirit, but instead indulged in the flesh. And when Jesus saved us, we were immediately changed into people who bear the righteousness of Jesus, not by our own works, but by his. And in that moment, there was a very real sense in which you and I stopped being the old self and a new self had come. There was a sense in which our loyalty and our pattern went from the first Adam to the second Adam, the better Adam. There was a real sense in which we were no longer stuck in the futility of our sin, but were offered a better way. But the outworking of that takes time, doesn't it? The outworking of that takes time, doesn't it? This taking off of the old self and putting on of the new is also a string of daily decisions that we make as believers to wake up and pursue Jesus and live according to his word, which is why we see here in verse 23 that we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. That's why we see in Romans 12 too, I think we'll have it here, right? That the word says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Very similar language to what we're seeing here in Ephesians, right? Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
And so we put on the new self as we go through our days submitting our thoughts and our hopes and our desires and lives to Jesus. We let him change us from the inside out. How do we do that? What does it look like to wake up and say, today is a day in which I put on the new self created after the likeness of God? Doing that looks like waking up and, and saying, today I will fill my mind with the word, pattern my life according to what the word says to me, to be in this book, understand Jesus more. I'm going to submit my life to him. I'm going to live in community with other believers, which is why we so highly encourage people to be in community groups at C3 so that you're not alone. But you have other people who can see into your life and, and encourage you and, and do life alongside you because you were never intended to live life alone. You weren't meant to figure this out by yourself. We do it through prayer we do it through filling our minds with things that spur our love for Jesus. We do it by confessing and walking away from sin. We do it by recognizing that there's a war inside of us that is being waged every day between the spirit and the flesh. But one of those has victory and the other does not. So we plead, Holy Spirit, work inside me today to kill off the flesh that wants to rule and reign but has no freedom and permission to do so. God works in and through our obedience to Jesus to make of us people who look more and more like him in the new self. And so what that looks like in action, right, the fruit of that is what we see in the remainder of this chapter. Followers of Jesus who've put off the old self with its deceitful desires and put on the new self that's modeled after Jesus exhibit behaviors and actions that reflect their new identity. And so the last thing I want us to see this morning is that we are called to accessorize life with matching actions. Take a look at verses 25 through 32. There it says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice." Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Do you guys remember something called Opposite Day? That's right, Opposite Day. Usually went something like this. You're at the lunch table and someone says, you're dumb, today's Opposite Day. So guess what, I'm actually really smart. You know, you're actually really smart. It's opposite day, right? So opposite day, right? Usually it was something that as kids or students, someone says something derogatory mean and you immediately turn it on its head. And then the rest of the, the lunch period is trying not to trip one another up with saying the wrong thing because today is opposite day, right? As we look at scripture, 
want you to keep opposite day in mind because that's really what I believe the Bible is saying to us here. Every day in the new self is opposite day. Every day in the new self is opposite day, right? So we look at these verses, we see that, that as a follower of Jesus, there's a contrast. There's a way that we used to live. We used to encounter situations. We used to have certain behaviors and certain actions. But in Jesus, those things get flipped on their head. And it's opposite day, right? So verse 25, as followers of Jesus, we put off falsehood. And what do we do instead? We walk and speak the truth. Look at these verses, right? We put off falsehood, we speak the truth. Why? Because we're members of one another. The church must be a place where truth can be spoken in grace for multiple reasons. We talked about community, right? If you don't live honestly in front of other people, it erodes trust and credibility. And if we're going to live in community with one another, we have to trust one another to be honest, to be real. Without the ability to speak truth to one another, we also miss out on a beautiful opportunity to help one another grow into Christ's likeness. Let me add a caveat here. Speaking truth doesn't mean that you get to walk around setting off truth bombs and then walking away to let others deal with the carnage, right? It's not saying that we're going to play sin police. Speaking truth is about much more than that. It's about recognizing that Jesus is truth, his word is truth, and because of that, we have the blessing of being able to do many things, encourage, counsel, remind, exhort, and yes, when needed, correct other believers with the delicate counsel of godly wisdom and the anchoring truth of his word. And when correction is needed, remember, scripture exhorts us, right, to go to one another first with the aim of winning that person back to right standing with Jesus and with us, not to winning an argument. Right? A scalpel and an axe can both cut, but knowing which one to use when taking out a splinter is wisdom. Just like correction must be wielded correctly, what else do we see here in these, these outworkings of, of the, the new self, these behaviors, these, these actions that are different? Verse 26, it says, says, be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Right, we could take an entire Sunday on this. Anger Management Sunday, right? Put it on a billboard. I'm here for it, right? Suffice it to say, though, the Bible discusses anger often, but we have to differentiate where the issue lies. It's not with anger itself, it's with how it's expressed, how it's dealt with, and the occasion for which it's experienced. We see in Scripture that Jesus got angry, right? He was indignant with religious leaders that were leading people astray. He was indignant that the temple of God was being turned into a marketplace he said, you guys are robbers. Flip tables. Most of the time I flip tables, it's not for righteous reasons. Right? We should experience church. It says be angry. It's not an encouragement to, to just live into anger, but it's an encouragement to say that, that when we experience healthy, righteous anger, there's a way to go about that. We should be angry when we see injustice, shouldn't we? We should be angry when we see murder. We should be angry when we see children being taken advantage of or women being trafficked or people being mistreated. Those things should get under our skin and make us angry because God has made people in his image and people are abusing people made in the image and likeness of God. Right? There are times to be angry. 
We all experience anger in the course of life as we deal with situations and people, but, but what do we do with it? Do we justify it? Do we blow up at people and simmer and take it out? Do we seek revenge or do we let anger serve as a God-given conduit to resolve problems, to pray, to check our hearts and to seek counsel? Listen, I'm not great at that. Ask my wife. But there should be a marked change in us as believers with the way that we experience anger. That when we experience it, we don't fall down the rabbit hole that's so easy to go down. That expand in increasingly egregious ways the sins that can come from anger. Be angry, but don't sin. What do we do with this this idea of not letting the sun go down on your anger? Listen, I don't think that this means that if you're angry with a spouse or angry about something in general that you can't go to bed at night until you have it resolved. You don't have to raise your hand for this, so I'll just assume that many of you are like me and you've decided we're gonna resolve this before we go to bed and ended up more angry and worse off before crashing in bed and then waking up the next morning and going, you know what, I would have been a lot better off if I'd just shut my trap and gone to bed two hours earlier because now I'm deeper in the hole and I'm tired. Right? I'm the only one. I appreciate that. <laughs> fine, fine to be an example here, right? Um, but that's happened, I think, for many of us, right? The encouragement here, I don't think, is saying, look, you can't go to sleep at night until you've resolved everything you're angry about, but it's a recognition that anger undealt with does not lead, James 1.20, right, to the righteous life that God requires of us. Remaining in our anger does not lead to the righteousness that God requires of us. So if we're angry about something, it's wise and necessary to deal with it as soon as possible in a healthy biblical way. And as we saw with regard to truth, hard conversations, even hard conversations where we're hurt or angry are done with grace and an aim toward reconciliation whenever possible. And so finally, the, the, the rest of this passage, there's three things that the Bible says differentiate the way that we live now in the new self. Verse 28 says, let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor doing honest work so that he may have something to share with others. Right? It says, take this person whose prerogative was to take from others. And in Jesus, what happens? There's an expectation not only for hard work, but to gain for the purpose of giving it away. He who used to take now gives freely. What else? Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but instead what's good for building others up. Just as a thief's behavior changes, right, to what can be done to bless others with what he has, so does our speech. We don't engage in crass talk or tearing one another down, but instead our speech blesses others that they may benefit from our words. We all know someone like this in our lives, don't we? Someone who you talk to and just a conversation with them, you're like, man, I'm so encouraged and thankful for you. Just every word that comes out of your mouth is just dripping with grace in Jesus. Such a good reminder. And then these heart issues, 30 and 31, let bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. What's the antidote for those things? Verse 32, opposite day, demonstrating Christ-like kindness and tenderheartedness toward one another, forgiving one another just as in God, Christ forgave us. You see, where others hold grudges or keep score or seek to get even or act out of a, a discontented heart, we embrace the heart of Christ for those around us, and we extend his mercy and his forgiveness-filled nature to the people we encounter. Do you notice a common element in all of these things? 
Do you notice a common element in all of these things? In all of these things, the primary beneficiary of the changed heart and changed actions expressed by God working through us is not you and me. It's others. Acting in accordance with our new identity in Jesus means that in what we have, in what we say, in what we feel toward others, in our heart, there is an intentionality to make much of Jesus and bless those around us. We become radically less self-absorbed, self-protecting, selfish, self-focused people and instead recognize that just as Jesus did what? Came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many we model his character and his heart of service to others by giving ourselves that the world around us might see and those within the family of God might see Jesus in and through us. So listen, if you and I sat here this morning and took stock of our lives, I would venture to guess that most of us have areas and more than just a couple of them in our life where we get up in the morning and just like a comfortable pair of clothes, that ratty old t-shirt and gym shorts that you know is sitting at home, that's really easy and really comfortable to slip back into. Many of us wake up and have patterns of behavior and actions in our life that are tied to the old self and we just slip them on because it's comfortable and it's easy and it's known. I can list off more areas of my life where this is the case than I really wish that I could. But the good news this morning, listen to this, the good news and hope this morning for us, church, is that because Jesus saved and redeemed us, you and I are no longer required to repeat the broken patterns of sin that can so easily entangle, right? Romans 6 says, the old self has been crucified with Jesus so that we would be no longer enslaved to sin. It has no power over you. That sin pattern in your life that you know is out of step with who God has called you to be, it doesn't have power over you. It doesn't mean that it's not hard. It doesn't mean that you don't need to pray about it. It doesn't mean you're going to wake up tomorrow and all of a sudden snap your fingers and the problem of sin is going to go away. But it means that in Jesus, it doesn't have permission to reign and rule in your life. You're no longer required to be the old self. The old is gone, the new has come. The better news for us, that's the good news, but the better news for us in all of this is that when we take stock and look in the mirror to evaluate ourselves, as we'll see next week in Ephesians 5.1, we are called to be imitators, not of the best version of ourselves that we see possible. We're called to be imitators of Christ. He is the reflection in the mirror that we are aiming for. And by his death on our behalf, he's not only given us his righteousness to meet that standard, but he is working inside of us to continually make us more and more and more into the true identity that he's given to us. And so this morning, my prayer of encouragement to us is that we will all strive by the power of Jesus to take off the old self and to put on the new self according to the calling which Jesus has called us to in his grace, knowing that it is he who is at work in us at all times. Would you join me in prayer?